Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. You're fantastic at coding, but do you have an action plan to take it to the next level? The upcoming book, Next Level Freelance, will help you optimize your freelance business for happiness. The book is packed with actionable steps to make more money, case studies, tips to find more clients, and exercises for you to establish your desired lifestyle. Extras include nine interviews with freelancers who make great money while enjoying great work-life balance, videos on strategies to find quality subcontractors, and videos on making more free time by outsourcing your daily tasks. Check it out today, nextlevelfreelance.com. This episode is sponsored by Planscope. Planscope is a project management and collaboration app built for freelancers and the way they work with clients. It makes it easy to price out new estimates and once you're underway, help answer the question, will this get done on time and under budget? I've been using Planscope to do my estimates and manage my projects and I really, really like it. It makes it really easy to keep things in in order and understand when things will get done. You can go check it out at planscope.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 80 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Curtis McHale. Hello. Ash Dryden. Hi there. Eric Davis. Hey. Ruben Lerner. Hello. Jim Gay. Hi. I feel like I should have a longer intro since everybody did one word things. So (laughs) welcome to The Freelancer Show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And before we get started... I just want to make a quick announcement. Um, This Friday, which by the time you get this will be last Friday, is my Freedom Day. It's the day I got laid off from my last full-time job and went freelance. So um, in honor of that, I am putting up a video, and it's going to be a video kind of explaining how I got started with freelancing and some of the lessons I learned along the way, and I'm hoping to pack it with a bunch of good advice for people. You can go get it at goingroguevideo.com. Anyway, you can pick it up there, and hopefully it helps you out. Are you going to show us your happy dance when you got laid off and started freelance? So, um, (laughs) I don't know if you did a dance that day. (laughs) That's kind of the topic of the show. Um, So, uh, is is talking about how we wound up going freelance and and how things got started for us. And, yeah, I didn't quite do a happy dance. Um, My work history basically went, though, that I had a job that I loved. They got acquired. It became a job that I hated. I went to another job that I enjoyed. Um, They ran out of Ruby work and laid me off. So I went to another job. I hated them, worked for them for a year, and just couldn't take it anymore. I went and got another job that I loved, and they laid me off. So I figured that the jobs I loved, I'd either get laid off or they'd change, so I hate them. And the jobs that I hated, they would give me try and give me a guilt trip for leaving. So I was being really picky when I got laid off from that job. And uh, by the time I found a job that looked like it might work out and not totally suck, I was making enough freelancing to pay the bills. So anyway... <laughs> So I didn't do a happy dance that day, but uh, yeah, over the course of the, the next six months, things worked out. And it also helped that I got a, enough of a severance and a bonus when they laid me off that uh, I could I could live on that for a month or two. Nice. Um, I'm a little curious how the rest of you uh, went freelance if you quit a job or got laid off or fired or what. Let's start with Reuven. I'm kind of curious to hear what his story is. So I worked for HP as a student, like during the summers when I was in college, and then just afterwards for about a year or two. And, you know, I did this normal student thing, which is not that much work, but you feel like it's a lot of work and you're learning how work works. And there was this guy in our group who was a contractor. And I was like, oh, what is that? He said, oh, it is the best thing ever. You go from company to company and you make tons of money and you don't have to go to meetings. I was like, okay. And I absorbed as much as a 19 or 20 year old really can of this, which is almost nothing. 
And then fast forward a few years, uh, after uh, HP, I worked for Time Warner. At that point, I was planning to move to Israel. And I knew like I was going to get to Israel at some point after about, I guess, eight or nine months there. And so when I talked to them about this, that I was going to be leaving, they said, well, what are you going to do? And that's sort of when this guy's story came back in my head. I said, well, I thought maybe I'd try consulting. And they said, oh, well, if you're going to do that, would you like us to be your first client? And I said, sure. This was more or less all I knew about consulting, that I now was going to be doing it and that I had a client. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> but like, I had never done billing. I'd never run a business. So I arrived in Israel, you know, my bags and my computer, and more or less started working with Time Warner right away on their project. Uh, and I, I didn't know, like, do I be, should I show myself employed? Should I incorporate? And Israel has different laws than the U.S. where you, you don't file your own tax forms in Israel unless you're either a business owner or wealthy. Everything is taken out at source. Um, and if you want tax deductions, you have to file special forms for that, but it's pretty rare. So if you want to be self-employed, you have to actually be registered with the government as self-employed, like basically as a business. And so I went to a, an accountant, and I told him I wanted to set up a business. He said, well, have you ever done this before in the U.S.? And I said, no. He said, great. You will think the weird way we do it in Israel is normal then. Uh, <laughs> and to this day, basically, I've basically seen like the Israeli way of doing business is totally reasonable. And when we were in the U.S. for a few years, I was like, oh, my God, these people are crazy. Uh, they have to you know, stay on the tax forms whether they did a boat or something. Anyway, my, my, um, my work with Time Warner uh, was about 20 hours a week. And I worked with them for, I think, about two years or three years, maybe even a little more. Yeah, I think it was like four years or something. And I, I decided early on that if I was going to try this consulting thing and if it was going to work, I really needed more than one client. I did not want to be – I understood at least enough that if I had one big client and they decided to leave me at some point, then I was going to be stuck. So I really made an effort to try to leverage the uh, steady income they were giving me, which was basically a retainer into getting more clients. And so I spoke at a bunch of user conferences and I got my name out more and more and friends and acquaintances got my name out. And it just sort of moved on from there. And I, so I was originally doing uh, sort of, I was always doing web stuff, but I was originally doing Perl uh, and database things, Perl and Linux. And more and more I moved sort of away from the Perl toward Python and then Ruby and less and less sort of sysadmin stuff and more and more uh, software development and architecture and consulting and at some point down the road, someone said, well, would you be interested in teaching classes about this? I said, yeah, I can teach, sure. Uh, and I'm sure if I were to look back at myself teaching 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I, I would, you know, this was all in 1995 when I started, by the way. So it sort of has been this long evolution. And uh, so I've been teaching now for, what, 15 years or so also, and hopefully getting better at it all the time. Anyway, so I, I basically, like, for, what, 17 years now, my sole income has been through freelancing, through some combination of consulting and programming and teaching. And when my wife and I got married, she was a little sort of surprised slash put off by, what do you mean you don't know what you make each month? And, <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we still don't. Uh, but it's, it, now like, she sees it as normal, and she's also doing some uh, contracting work in her line of business, which is not high-tech at all. And it's just really worked. And I, I, I just totally enjoy it. Every so often, I'm offered a full-time job. And I think to myself, first of all, wait, that would mean me just getting a paycheck from one place. Oh, my God, that's so scary. What happens if I get laid off? <laughs> and the other thing is um, I just love the variety. I love talking to new people all the time and new challenges and on and on and on. I can't imagine sort of sitting in the same place every day with the same people anymore. It's kind of anathema to, to me at this point. Yeah, I, I think 
we all feel that way to one degree or another. I'm, I'm going to switch gears because I want to get through all of our you know, various uh, backgrounds with freelancing and how we got started, and then we can kind of talk about some of the lessons we've learned. Ash, how did you go freelance? For a long time, like I, I was, uh, I, I helped start um, some of the web development uh, user groups in Milwaukee, and for a long time, people would come up to me and ask because I was so passionate about it. You know, do do you do this full time? And and at the time, I was doing um, more like software development and software support. Uh, but I wasn't doing it for myself. I was doing it for another company. And uh, I would be like, well, I could use the extra money. So I would work on things on the side. And I was working with uh, quite a few marketing and advertising agencies after a while. And I was basically working 18 hours a day, which sounds as horrible as it actually was. Like I would get up and go to my regular job. And then I would come home and work until two or three o'clock in the morning on all of my freelancing stuff, basically just to pay the bills and be able to put away money and, and that kind of thing. And after a while, I was starting to make more money doing the freelancing stuff than I was at my day job. So I decided, you know, I, this was like January, um, four or five years ago, I decided, you know, I'm just going to quit and I'll work for myself. And I was terrified because there is a lot of money mismanagement in my family. Like it kind of runs like bankruptcies run in my family and, and that kind of thing. So I, I was really worried about not being able to eat, not being able, I was very concerned about not being able to feed my cats. That was probably the biggest thing. I was very worried um, that these little creatures that I was supposed to take care of, I wouldn't be able to feed. So uh, I, I thought about it in January and uh, I decided in three or four months I was going to quit and I was going to work for myself. So I spent some months going out and telling people, hey, I'm going to be going freelance, I'm be working for myself. If you think of anything, uh, send it my way. But in the meantime, I stocked up on stuff at home. I was like a doomsday prepper at that point. Like I went to the store and I bought like 10 tubes of toothpaste and tons of cat food and you know, everything that I could think of that I might possibly run out of uh, so I wouldn't have to worry about it if, if things got lean. So I, I prepped my house and I had all of this stuff stockpiled. And um, three or four months later, I quit. And about uh, a couple months into it, um, somebody asked me if I would come on as a co-founder of a startup. So I did that for about a year. But outside of that, like it's it's just been um, people, you know, asking me, you know, is this something that you do, or or talking to me after I speak at conferences or or write blog posts about the kinds of things that I do. And I'm very lucky that I don't have to do a lot of marketing for my work. It just kind of comes my way. I mean, I have lean times just like everybody else does, but for the most part, I, I really don't struggle just because of the way I've set my stuff up. I do consulting uh, with a lot of marketing and advertising and um, dev shops, and basically they just throw me work whenever they don't have somebody in-house that has those skills or they need some kind of team direction or they have too much work and not enough people to do it. So they just say, hey, do you, is your August busy? We would like to pay for your August if you want to work on a project with us, which works out really nicely for me. That's really cool. I mean, kind of some funny points in there, but uh, really interesting. I wish I'd had the guts to quit, but my wife wouldn't have let me. Um, Jim, what's your story? It's funny. I kind of have like two starting points. So I look back, I see I have two starting points because I was in college um, and I was getting a graphic design degree. And I, in that program, I knew a lot of who were graduating in the class ahead of me. So I was a junior and the people who were preparing their portfolios and, and were worried about getting jobs, they had all been running around like crazy, worrying about interviews and making their portfolios looking good. And they, 
I would hear people comment like, you know, we should just start our own consultancy. We should start our own studio. And at the time, I was actually doing a little freelance work on the side for my father's company, doing like flash design and web design, um, which was like brand new at the time, uh, back in the late 90s. And so I heard all these people complaining that, you know, they were worried about getting jobs. And I was like, well, how hard could it be? So I went home one summer and I registered a business in my hometown and, you know, it cost me like 35 bucks to fill out some form and pay a fee and I had a business license. And so that was kind of the start and I had done some freelancing on the side and I think probably what a lot of people who have not really done it full-time worry about is is the, the point where I got was, okay, now I've, I've done a little bit and I'm struggling and I'm staying up late and I'm losing sleep or I'm not, you know, giving enough time for my spouse or my kids or whatever it may be. And I hit a point where my wife and I didn't have kids and, and it was something I wanted to do was to leave my job and start my own company. And we realized at a certain point it was never going to happen until I just did it. Uh, so we decided, okay, six months from now you'll quit and we'll have enough money and we'll just see how it goes. And that's pretty much it. So I was, you know, I was in the workforce for like, I don't know, I would say five or six years or something until finally I decided, all right, I've got a handful of clients, but you know, like I would sneak out of my office to take a phone call and pace around the parking lot of my building because it had terrible Wi-Fi signal there, or sorry, terrible cell signal there. And I'd try to, you know, have meetings like at lunchtime on the phone and, and try to keep my clients happy. And it was just a disaster. So once I finally quit, then I had all the time in the world to, you know, follow up with people and get connected. And um, uh, I basically didn't turn around, though. It's funny. Um, as soon as I decided I was going to put in my notice and quit uh, the next day, uh, we found out my wife was pregnant. <laughs> and so I was like, uh, should I backtrack so I go back to my boss and say, actually, I, I think I still want my job. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's worked out ever since. That's pretty amazing. Curtis, what's your story? Well, I kind of stumbled into the web out of a psychology degree because I decided it was more fun anyways. And I worked at two different places in-house. One was more of a paddling. Uh, it was a kayaking shop. And it was only part of my job was to do their web. And the second one was a, uh, a Christian ministry. And that was my full-time job was to do the web. But I chafed under, I guess, leadership, the leadership, and have in many jobs anyways. So my wife and I decided that it was a good idea to, to for me to start my own business. I'd already run a bunch of other ones, uh, like in construction and a bunch of other stuff. I'd always worked on the side pretty much, you know, framing or doing whatever else I did. Basically, since I was like 18, really. Yeah, we just set up a plan. I think we said three months of income that we had to save up. And once that was saved up, I gave my notice. And I found out we were pregnant one week after I left. So <laughs> <laughs> it was like I left on the Friday in the fall, like not the next Monday, but I guess the next full Monday after taking like the whole weekend off, basically. I took like a five-day weekend, my first weekend of freelancing. And we found out we were expecting our first child as soon as that happened. So that's a short version of my story and say my wife was on board with it right from the beginning as long as we had our income set up and we just set up a plan she was said go for it and she always says I'm way happier doing this and she'd way rather have me doing what I'm doing than go back to a job even working remotely we've I've tried that once and she's like but you didn't like it remember and I didn't like you then either so 
<laughs> nice. Eric, what's your story? Let's see. Kind of mid-2007. Uh, I guess actually early 2007, I was working at a software company, um, a real small local one. And we were in California and decided, like, let's move to Oregon. I, I don't remember the reasons why. I think because all of our family was in California. And so we just like, was it? I didn't expect you to say all your family was in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, actually, a lot of our families kind of followed us up here since we moved up here. So we're, we're talking about Canada now, but that's a different story. <laughs> but we like just got a call from like, we came up for a while. I uh, got a call from like an apartment up here and they're like, hey, we actually have an apartment. And I think in the course of like a month or two months, we decided to pack up and move and just leave the state. And so I basically put in my notice at the comp- company I was working at. And by that time, like I actually got hired there to do tech support, even though I knew programming and stuff. And by the time I left, I, my job title was like tech support, um, like testing, testing automation person, webmaster, um, building web app, like Rails web apps, building desktop programs, kind of doing mobile stuff, and then running all of their servers. So like I was like a jack of all trades at that point. And that's just because I have this, kind of tendency to just jump into things and just be curious and learn. And so when we moved up here, uh, part of it is I had to sell my car, which was like an old like 80s uh, Volkswagen Jetta. So it wasn't, wasn't worth that much. But I was like, I really don't want to buy another car. And so I was like talking to my wife and I also didn't want to go out and interview. And so I decided like, hey, why don't I take like 800 or 900 bucks from the proceeds of the car sale and try to start my own business to do whatever. And if, if I can get it to work, then I can keep doing that. Otherwise, I still have 800 or 900 bucks to kind of go run around, do job interviews, and find, find a way to bring in some money. And so I think it took about maybe a month or so, and I started booking work. And then finally, like I got just a basic you know, static HTML website design project that I think is like 2500 or something. It was a pretty decent amount for you know, kind of how much I thought I would get paid. And that basically just started kickstarting my uh, my freelance business, and I just started, you know, doing more marketing, picking up uh, clients here and there. And in fact, probably about four or five months after I started, I picked up a client that I worked with for about five years afterwards. So, like, it was it was kind of a very haphazard way. And it, like I said, it's actually almost a bet. Like, you know, I bet I can get this business started. If I can't, then you know, my wife, you get something out of it. If if I get it started, then I don't have to go find a job. And so, you know, it was very much a, just on a whim thing. But the something I didn't say is I also kind of started, never really actually made any money, but I started two or three businesses in college. So I kind of had like this itch of entrepreneurship back then. And I think that's kind of what kind of helped drive me in the first few months. Awesome. So I, I kind of want to go into now um, some of the mistakes that you made early on freelancing. And, and I'll go ahead and start with one. I had a pretty good platform for finding things and I knew... I knew several people out here in the community, um, but again, I was being picky about which job I took since I had gotten laid off from pretty much every job that I loved, and they, they wanted me to stay at the jobs that I hated. So anyway, so I was being picky, and I, I talked to a few people, and I heard about a contract over here in the town just uh, south of the one that I live in. So uh, I went in and interviewed, and uh, a couple of other guys that I knew that were doing, you know, picking up contracts went in and interviewed, and amazingly, I was the one that they hired. Well, it turned out that uh, if you go and bid yourself at 65 bucks an hour, and everybody else bids themselves out at 120 bucks an hour, you're going to get the contract. So uh, <laughs> that, that, was, that was the first mistake I made. I probably could have gotten that contract for $100 an hour pretty easily, and, uh, you know, I worked it for a few months, and 
it did kind of help me figure out how to, you know, run my business and, and things like that. But that was one major mistake that I made. I left a ton of money on the table doing work for way too little. So, uh, yeah, that's one mistake. Don't sell yourself short <laughs> when you get started. Yeah, I, I think my first contract was like $35 an hour. And I even discounted it because it, it was like my previous employer. So like I was making more than my my salary, but like barely any. Like I, I had no idea about all the taxes and everything else. And I think the contracts ended up being like twenty or thirty hours total. So it wasn't even like volume. It's so hard when you're first starting out. I mean, people don't talk about. I mean, they do now, but when I started, people really didn't talk about how much they charged. So I had no idea. So I did the same thing. I mean, I just added 50% to what I was making per hour at my last job. And that's what I was charging. And I was so surprised when so many people would be like, yeah, you de- you won this. And I'm like, man, I must be super good. Come to find out I'm, I'm bidding at like a quarter of the cost of what <laughs> everybody else does. And you know, if it weren't, if it wasn't for a friend of mine that took me aside and said, Hey, you need to be charging more. Like I'm going to be paying you X dollars per hour because this is ridiculous. You can't charge this little. I had, cause I had no idea. I mean, in it, when you don't have, I didn't have the confidence in my abilities back then either to feel like I could command the rate that I should have been charging. Uh, so it took a while to kind of fall into that. Yeah. I looked yeah, out and wound up spending time with Eric and, uh, Evan and some of the other folks, you know, there and yeah, they sent me straight pretty fast. Nice. Good friends. <laughs> I, I had a friend who I, I really had no one to talk to about setting rates. And I sort of had to also juggle rates in Israel where consulting rates are way, way lower than the U.S. And then in the U.S. because I was doing work, I mean, not only for Time Warner, but like I picked up a bunch of clients abroad as well. Um, but I did have a good friend, still is a good friend and colleague who's a graphic designer. And we did a whole bunch of projects together. And my rule of thumb was basically, whatever he's charging, I should be charging more because programming is harder. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, that was sort of my rule of thumb for rates. Oh, he's charging $50? I should really charge 65 That sounds about right to me. Uh, and that's more or less how I sort of uh, set rates for, for a long time. And now I sort of try to push it. I mean, I think like like many of us, most of us uh, in the field, sort of try to push it as as high as possible without of course you know losing things but it's not it's not unusual for me to sort of talk to someone and say their say my rate and in israel they'll sort of fall off the chair and turn pale <laughs> and then like and then like two months later they'll be like uh, actually we would not mind working with you a little bit uh, <laughs> well i have friends maybe, I, I they have... hired someone in the middle who they didn't like <laughs> Yeah, I have a I have a friend who's a designer who I asked to design some slides for me. And at first she didn't want to charge me. I'm like, hey, I really want to pay you for this. And then gave me her hourly rate. And I ch- I paid her double that because I'm just like, look, everybody has had some somebody at, at, at some point in their career say you are being you are charging too little. And I am the first client that's going to charge you or that's going to pay you at the correct rate. And now you feel now you should feel that now that you've been paid what you should be paid that you can go out into the rest to the rest of your clients and also demand that same rate. Any other mistakes you guys made? Cause I've got plenty more. <laughs> How I, long do we have? <laughs> oh, we could probably I, talk for another 20 minutes. I, was I didn't say my taxes. <laughs> I didn't say my taxes one year. So yeah, I, I did that, that too. at the end. Yeah. Oh, those not, not fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You wind up coughing up a whole bunch of money. Whoops. Yeah. I did mm-hmm. that too. Yeah, Not I, having people sign contracts. Oh, oh yes. Oh yeah. You know, you know what's funny is I had to make that mistake more than once. Yes. 
<laughs> I made that mistake a few months ago. It's like, oh, oh, he's a friend of mine, and he'll totally not screw me over. And he told me that he had money in the bank. And so I'm like, okay, this is totally going to work out. Yeah, I'm still harassing him to pay me. I'm just like, oh, I totally lost a friend over this deal. I, yeah. I got a call from a friend, not a close friend, but a friend, like, uh, I guess it was about two or three years ago at this point, who said, oh, I know this guy, and he's got, he needs this web app, and he's really great, and on and on. I was like, great. So I met him, super impressed me, which it turns out is not so hard, I guess. And uh, uh, so everything sounded great, and somehow we never signed a contract. But that was okay, because when I said I wanted to get, what was it, 25% up front, and truth be told, I rarely ask for money up front, but I figured, okay, he's offering, why not? We were sitting at a cafe. He takes out cash <laughs> and, and puts it on the table. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Like, this was like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It, like, Wait, it was dollar, on top like, of the table or under the table? Oh, it was on top <laughs> of the table. He, so I basically, like, whenever I have lots of cash, I sort of feel like everyone can see it and it's burning a hole in my pocket. And there's like a, you know, a big, big, I don't know, thing on the map saying, Reuven has cash, come steal it. <laughs> so I basically like, drove directly from there to the place that I, like, where I could deposit uh, dollars easily. Of course, you know, fast forward several months later, he pays me a second time, pays me a third time. Then I do a ton of work. Why don't you pay me? Oh, well, you did a terrible job. <laughs> and I was like, no, you have to pay me. Oh, no, you did a terrible job. So basically, I called my friend. He was like, well, I'll try to convince him. I don't know. It sounds like you've got a good case. I don't know. I finally went to a lawyer. And the lawyer said, oh, you didn't have a contract? Hmm. Let me look this guy up. And then he said, oh, this guy is a known fraudster. He was on the national news for defrauding a whole lot of people. Let me show you. And that's when (laughs) I realized I was probably not going to be paid very soon. Just a quick follow-up. The friend uh, felt terrible, and he told me a few months ago that his uh, First of all, this guy has now become his brother-in-law. And second of all, all, his father, like my friend's father, was also duped out of a whole lot of money from the same guy. So he was like, well, I feel bad for you, but I also feel bad for my dad. And the lesson, boys and girls, is always have a contract. Oh, wow. Oh, man. You know, I've had, I remember when I was starting being scared about that type of thing because uh, at the time I was doing graphic design work and I was a member of the AIGA and they offer um, a standard contract and it is massive uh, compared to what I was used to doing. You know, I found some small little contract that was like one, maybe two pages. Um, and this thing had everything you could think of for interactive work, for, um, uh, you know, brochure designs and annual reports and, and publications and all kinds of stuff. And I had actually sent that to a potential client and they they were like, this is ridiculous. We just want a small little website done or whatever it was. I don't remember. And they walked away. Now, I was afraid at the time because I thought that the contract was the thing that pushed them away. But really, they were never convinced that I was going to be the person anyway. Like, I didn't do a good enough job showing them that I was the right person for the job. You know? um, so I think it's important for anybody starting out that if you have a rock-solid contract, you should be confident in your rock-solid contract, and you should be focusing on building the relationship so that they you know, trust you to do the job. Because if anybody walks away and blames a good contract, then you probably don't want them as a client anyway. I've never, ever had a client say, What? You want us to sign a contract? There's no way I'll work with you. On the contrary, I found that it 
only commands respect and negotiating the parts that everyone disagrees with on the contract. I mean, that's normal. I mean, I, I love it when people say, well, we'll just have you sign our standard contract. Uh, for those of you who don't realize this, like there is no standard contract. Everyone changes contracts. It's totally fine. You can totally change it, and you should. But they've always been extremely open and reasonable about it. And I, at the end of the day, like when we sign it, I then feel confident. Wow, I will get paid, and they will get their work, and we can both be sure that's going to happen. Uh, whenever I hear standard contract from a con- uh, from a client, <laughs> I always hear sucker contract. Yeah. Well, I had, I I think I've told this story on the show before, but I had um, a very large um, national hardware chain come to me and they wanted me to do some work for them. And I was pretty excited because it's a national brand and that's, that's nice work that would be nice to be putting in my portfolio. But they had in their contract that if I worked on this app that they wanted, that I couldn't um, produce any web app in the next year that had any kind of cataloging in it. Like, I couldn't have anything that had categories. I couldn't have anything that was e-commerce. And I'm just like, do you Seems understand? That? And, and, like, they're just like, well, this is our standard thing. I'm like, well, I can tell you that nobody worth their beans is going to sign this contract. And they're like, well, it's a requirement. I'm like, well, then you're going to have to find someone else. And, I, you know, I have no idea if the project ever got done or if, you know, somebody got suckered into that. But oh, just so man. ridiculous. Like, I mean, knowing knowing what I know now that, you know, a lot of NDAs um, – not NDAs, I'm sorry – non-competes um, are easily defeated in court – but also the fact that they didn't have money to take a national chain to court over something like that. Like I, I probably would have done it and then just violated the non-compete and taken them to court just so I could be like, see, I told you. <laughs> I actually had someone with a very similar contract set up and I looked at it and I said, I'll sign that. And I like upped the rate like $30,000. And they're like, what do you mean? It's like, well, that's all the work I can't do that I did last year. You want me to not do the work, you have to pay me for it anyways. And they said, No way, what's your contract? (laughs) That is an awesome idea. I just literally today got a contract from a potential client in the US where they said, Oh, this is our sort of overall contract. I I forget what it's called, like the overall one as opposed to a statement of work. And I was sort of skimming through it before the show, and there's a paragraph in there that says, you will not use any open source software for anything you do with us. <laughs> I was thinking, well, that might limit my ability to do web development in Ruby and jQuery, I think. <laughs> I hope it's so, not just worked on, on a computer. <laughs> right, right. That electricity thing might be a little tricky, too. Uh, no, the electricity so. is an open source. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Silly me. <laughs> but I have a strange feeling that I'll be the first person to mention this to them, that maybe we should get rid of that paragraph. It's funny. I, I usually just send people my contract. Like I have a contract that I've uh, put together over the last few years, you know, different advice, different lawyers and so forth. And I pride myself on it being really short and really readable. And um, I, so, so far, so good. But it's sort of who moves first, right? Like if I say I'll send you my contract, they're usually okay with it. But if they say first, we'll send you our contract, then... Well, I'm kind of stuck with theirs. No, I tell people that uh, I prefer to use mine. Here it is. Oh, uh, I should try that. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, I just charge more. I mean, I just telling them that I charge more is enough for them to be like, well, okay, I guess we'll use yours. So any other mistakes that you guys made over the first little while? Accepting I, I- any job that comes along. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I was just going to say that too. That's a huge <laughs> thing. Like, I... I for a while, um, when I first started, I was so worried, like I said, about not um, 
about like any lean times, about not having any money coming in, that I would accept any job. I would discount my rate, you know, if it would uh, talk a client into doing something. And those were always the worst clients. It was always the worst projects. They were the worst people to work with. They'd never paid on time. And I was always sad that I did it. And uh, now I learned definitely um, from those times that I won't compromise on any of my work on the time that I think it takes to complete something uh, on, on the amount of money that I'm worth, because I always regretted it every single time. Funny that you mentioned that next week, we're going to be talking to Michael Port about Book Yourself Solid. So, and, and, and that's one of the first things he talks about is the velvet rope policy. And I listened to that like three times. Cause I'm like, I need to sink this in. I need to sink this in. Cause it makes such a great, it, it he makes such a great case for this. So absolutely. Well, I mean, I, look, uh, t- to be fair, like, I think, I think it's a great policy to have to like, you know, only work with, you know, high paying clients or nice clients. And that's great when you can, but I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are times when, it's either that or not have enough money to pay the bills. But I agree that if you if you can hold out for better clients, that's definitely the best way to go. Yeah, don't starve, please. <laughs> right, right. Yes. <laughs> Do not take this as an endorsement of starvation. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll just add to what Ash said that, like, when I first started up in consulting, there was this uh, lawyer I met uh, who was at the same synagogue I was at. He was like, oh, you're going to business. Let me give you some great advice. Never turn work down. And that was such terrible advice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, I held on to it for years thinking, wow, he really helped me. And now it's like, no, he actually did the opposite. Yep. You get what you pay for. Well, not to mention the fact that it's really empowering, too, to know that you can walk away from any deal. Uh, and I, I think that is probably one of the better lessons I've learned in the past five years. Like, I don't have to do this. You know, if something feels not right about this, I don't have to do this. There's nothing saying that, you know, I've gotten into this and I've been talking to these people for a few weeks that I can't just be like, hey, I'm not the right fit for you. I'd be happy to recommend you to somebody else or give you some suggestions, but I don't think that this is going to work. And this is also why I write kind of an escape clause into my contracts for both parties, because sometimes it just happens where people don't work well together or, um, you know, work philosophies are different. And it's, it's nice to have that out without burning a bridge. I have to say that uh, it, it also helps along these same lines. And, and this harks back to something that Curtis said earlier. If my wife is much more interested in me being happy than me making money. And so, you know, if, if I turn away a client, she's not angry with me because she's, she'd much rather see me working with somebody that I'm happy to work with than, um, you know, see me, you know, totally upset or, you know, totally worn down or whatever by a client. And, uh, even to the point where, and I haven't tested this, but it really seems like even to the point where we miss a few payments on things. Yeah, my my wife's actually told me to fire certain clients, and I him and haw about it, and then I end up firing them, and I'm like, yeah, you were right about it. <laughs> my my wife tells me not to take certain clients. I'll come home and I'll talk about. It. She'll be like, you should not work with these people. I say, oh, I'm sure it'll work out great. And inevitably, every one of the ones that she pegs as you shouldn't work with. Just from the description that I give her at home, she's able to intuit that, yeah, these are people that I should, probably should not be working with. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing how how people that are close to you can really gauge the truth about things, even though they may not know all the details. 
Well, that could be part of it. Is, you know, you might be like seduced by the details, and that's why you want to work with them. But you know, they only know about the summary, and there's enough in the summary to tell them that it's not going to work out. And so you're kind of like convincing yourself that this would be a good thing, but it's actually not. Well, and in your demeanor and things like that as well. Well, I talked to them, and you know, and so you kind of low, shrug your shoulders down, and you know, well, they kind of said this, and, and yeah, you know, you're not seeing the red flag because you're excited about some other f- aspect. Yeah, and my wife like right. doesn't care anything about the technological aspect. She's she cares more about the business and like you know how I end up feeling about it. And so you know, if the technology is like really cool and hot, but the business side and all that, like it doesn't seem right there. She notices that before I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got another mistake that I made pretty early on, and that was that I hired a subcontractor that I shouldn't have hired. And he worked out great for a few months, but uh, then I wasn't watching what he was doing, and he started to mess things up for my client. And, uh, yeah, so uh, that that was a mistake. And I guess the lesson was just that, you know, if, if you're going to hire subcontractors to do work basically, you know, with your name, then you've, you've got to keep close tabs on them and, and you know, be involved. Right, right. It's it's definitely your it's it's your name on the product, yep, uh, or on the service that you're offering. It doesn't. You can have, uh, you know, as many minions as you want working on it, but they don't care. Yeah, I wound up refunding some money back to the client. I was just like, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. Here's some money back, and uh, you know, I wasn't I wasn't particularly worried about him leaving. I was just, you know, he didn't get the value that he paid for, so he got the money back. Any yeah, other? I, I had. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, along those lines. I mean, uh, I uh, years ago before the dot com bubble exploded in two thousand, so I had a bunch of people working for me, and I had them working at fixed monthly salaries. And then the bubble exploded. What do you know? I couldn't pay the salaries, or I could, but it meant not paying mine. So that was a mistake I have not repeated since then. Uh, and now, basically, anyone who works for me either works on a subcontracting basis, or I pay them a, a, a like a variable salary. I pay them on an hourly basis. And so if there's no work or if there's very little work, then I'm not on the hook for paying their full monthly salary. And some people are, are totally not okay with this, and some people are fine. So you, know, you just have to find the people, or I just had to find the people who were okay with it. Anything else on that or any other mistakes that you guys made starting out? I think not- giving too much away was one of mine. Uh, you know, if I had a large contract with a client and they would say, do you think that we could do this? And I would say, oh yeah, we can do that and still try and fit it into the deadline and say, oh, it's small enough that I, I just won't charge extra. Like it, it creates goodwill with the client, which is really great, but it hurt my ability to meet deadlines and to, I was working more than, um, than I was getting paid for. So that was a mistake for sure. For me, you know, it was not being involved in the community. Like I was doing graphic design work and I was a member of AIGA, but that wasn't enough. Like I wasn't going and meeting people and being involved. I wasn't blogging about what I was doing. And so I really didn't have this, um, I didn't have any kind of social safety net in terms of my business. You know, like I didn't know um, people who would say, oh yeah, I can, I can use you on this project, you know, if I was, if I didn't have work. And so I think that was my biggest fear that like, how am I going to get work? And I just wasn't doing a good job of staying involved and, and, you know, being somebody who is just known. I I think one of the mistakes that I made uh, early on was believing that the most important thing I brought to the table was technical ability. And I think that, I mean, my experience is, yes, obviously clients want someone who knows if you're, if you're in a technical field, like, you know, doing software development, they obviously want you to know that. 
But I think they're slightly less interested in having a software genius and more interested in having someone they can work with and communicate with and be reasonable and businesslike. And you know, again and again, the ability to write, the ability to speak has trumped my ability to write code, I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I've, I've often found that being able to at least, you know, like a lot of co- clients I had, if I was doing web design for them, just explaining in a way they understood and being patient how certain aspects of their website worked. And I don't mean technically, but like what it is they're writing and how it gets updated and all that kind of stuff, you know, walking them through so they feel like they actually understand rather than just playing a guessing game and, you know, poking at different developers like, can you do this for me? Like, yeah, sure, I can do it. Or, well, here's what I can do. You know, this is why you want to do these things. And that I always found really helpful. People were people appreciated it. I wasn't very good at turning that early on. I wasn't very good at turning that into business, unfortunately. I, I gave too much away, but at least people were, you know, I was good at making people comfortable with the work that they needed to do. Yeah, that, that's so... I, I had a guy working for me years ago who was very smart technically, but I actually got a call from a client saying, please don't ever send him to us again, because he's just saying that all of our ideas are stupid, and he, he sh- we should let him just go and sit and write code. I was like, okay. And when the... <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be sending him out anymore. And uh, when the bubble burst very, very shortly after that, he was the first one shown the door. And that's a mistake in the business you think you're in, right? Well, we may develop... We're really in the business of customer service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I had a another subcontractor that he did great work, and for the most part he was a good guy, good subcontractor. But, yeah, he he got in. My client was kind of learning Rails at the same time, and he'd jump in and, uh, quote, help us out. Um, most of the time his work was good because he'd, he'd take the you know the simpler stuff. But um, the, the real issue was that uh, he... The the client sent a message saying um, this bug isn't fixed and I you know I can't I you know I can't get it to work and uh, this contractor just snapped at him and you know got all over him about you know pulling the latest code and, and this that and the other and uh, yeah he wasn't subcontracting for me after that and uh, it, it really is it's about customer service and you know you forget that and it, it'll burn you. Absolutely. Yeah, I think just, just yesterday I was talking to a potential client and he said to me, so tell me in a nutshell why you think we should work with you. And that was all I told him about. I said, look, we work with people for months and years, not for days and weeks, and we like to have long-term relationships and we care about customer service. And I sort of figured the technical stuff was sort of a, a, a given, but what they need is to feel good, to feel that they're in good hands, to feel that they can trust us with this very important work that they need done. Yep. I'm trying to think. I mean, I have I have a whole list of things, obviously, for this video. Well, there's one thing. I mean, we kind of mentioned it, but it's when you get started, you really need to have focus and stick with it. Like, for example, when I got started, I knew Rails really good. I knew PHP decently well. And uh, the first year or two years, I did general Rails projects. I did PHP stuff. I did WordPress plugins. I did system administration. I did training. I, I was all over the map. And it took me a while to really stop that and to kind of focus on one area. And once I did that, like the business just blew up. Like every, I was busy all the time. I was able to make double, triple what I was making in the beginning. And it's just because I stopped saying yes to everyone and started saying no. And I mean, that's both clients, the type of work, all that stuff. And so I think, I think that's the really important thing, especially when you're one person, you can only do so much. You can only be an expert at so many things 
And if you try to be everything to everyone, it really dilutes kind of what you're trying to do. And it can, it can drive you insane. Like you just get so stressed by trying to balance all the balls and it's easier just to focus on the two or three up in the air that are the most important. Yep. All right. So I'm a little curious. I know we're running short on time, but I'm a little bit curious. Are there things that you guys had or did um, before or right when you went freelance that seemed to make the difference in whether or not you were able to find work and make it work? Regular marketing. Being really well networked with the local community. So if they heard of things, um, they would send them my way. Yep. The other thing that paid off for me was that I had been doing teachmetocode.com. So I had the video series and the blog going. and that, that Oh, you did off. that before you went freelance. I, I didn't did realize that. did that before I went freelance, yeah. I wasn't actually doing it so I could go freelance either. I was just doing it because I liked it, but it paid off. Yeah, I was going to say sheer luck, but we'll call that networking as well. A friend of mine's company was getting out of uh, regular client work and moving towards a product, so they sent me a ton of clients. That was my first year. So sheer luck or networking, whichever one you want to call it. And the jobs that I had uh, before I went freelance, uh, I was constantly having to learn new stuff all the time. I mean, and I enjoy that anyway, but they would just constantly throw things at me, do this, do this, do this, and I'd have to learn it quickly and use it. And that's been super, super useful in freelancing because I just always have to learn new things. And so the ability to read, incorporate, and then tell people about it as if I've known about this for a long time and uh, sort of integrate it and synthesize it into my explanations, uh, that's been really quite useful. For me, it was, uh, I was actually, I think, sort of destined for a terrible business early on because I, I wasn't involved in anything really. It was just only word of mouth. And that can go, that can only go so far if, if you're not really churning out a lot of good stuff, uh, and making people really happy, you know. And I didn't know what I was doing. It was tough to really take like the, the smallest little project and make people just gush about you. Um, so once I got involved, uh, I had had at a certain point switched over to doing more Ruby development than uh, graphic design. And once I started getting involved in the community, then I really saw benefits from that. And and it wasn't even going to meetups or anything like that. It hadn't even started that. It was just contribution to open source and, you know, activity on a mailing list. And um, I could do that from my own desk. So that was, um, that really solved the problem for me. Awesome. Just it. Jim, you said something about you know working from your own desk. I'll just uh, relate the anecdote that it's probably about a year or so ago. I said to my kids as they were heading off to school, you know, guys, most adults actually go to the same place every day and work with the same people every day. And they looked at me like, really? Because <laughs> <laughs> from their perspective, you know, both their parents are going off different places every day and working with different people. And so their norm and their expectation is, oh yeah, having your own business and consulting and freelancing for people, that's that that's how it works. You know, we're the normal ones, which is I think uh, you know, everyone gets adjusted to what they see and assumes that it's the norm. I find that very encouraging, actually. Yeah, my daughter was talking with her friend about why her daddy doesn't work at home when uh, when my wife was over there with the kid last week. Where's your daddy? Is he not in his office at home? No. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up and do the picks. Curtis, what are your picks? I've got two today. The first one is just a funny site called Dev Best Practices, and it's a chunk of animated GIFs of uh, funny development best practices, or not best practices anyways. And the second one is my Kata 467i bag, which is awesome for traveling. It fits my camera, my laptop, my, yeah, 
camera, like I say, camera laptop. I can travel three or four days with just that as well, and my iPad and all my clothes and everything. It is a way bigger bag than you'd ever think it is for just a small, say, small normal around the town pack. Nice, Eric. What are your picks? All right, so I got two. Um, first one is a blog post by Amy Hoy. It's called "How Do You Stay Motivated When You're Not Making Any Money." Uh, it's not just about making money. It's basically it's a lot about motivation. It's really interesting. Um, I've talked with a lot of people about this, how you know some people are motivated by external stuff versus internally. Um, it's a pretty good post. She actually outlines a, a different way than I've even thought about it. Uh, the second one is a book I read. I, I read on the Kindle. I think it's in the Prime Library, but uh, it's called Your First Thousand Copies, A Step-by-Step Guide to Marketing Your Book. Um, since I just released my ebook, you know, I'm kind of getting into the marketing stuff again. And this was actually probably one of the better like book marketing books that I've read. Uh, it really went into a lot about, you know, building your audience and, you know, helping them and doing all that stuff. So it was, it was good. It's a pretty quick read. Um, but I think I like highlighted like the entire book. So I had to go through all my notes later on. Cool. I'll have to look into that because someday I want to write a book. Ash, what are your picks? I just have one this week. Uh, it's Aided Developers Academy. It's a programming school for women uh, specifically. And right now they're running a fundraiser to be able to both fund the school, but also to pay the students to be able to attend. Because one of the, the bigger issues with getting more people in marginalized groups into tech or going through these kinds of programs is that they don't have the support network to be able to quit their jobs and do nothing for months at a time. Uh, so that's on Indiegogo and, uh, it's up for the next about a little over a month. So nice. That, that sounds cool. I saw that on Twitter or something the other day. Yeah. And it started by, um, a Ruby developer that actually went through hungry Academy, the developer school for living social that was run by jumpstart labs. Oh, who's that? Elise worthy. Oh, awesome. Yeah. She was on the Ruby rogues podcast. So yeah, she was awesome. All right. Well, uh, Jim, what are your picks? Um, I know I picked this a long time ago when I first got one, but I have a Jawbone Up band, and uh, I'll just give everybody a status on it. I've been using it to track my sleep. You know, I've been in times when it's been, you know, freelancing can be feast or famine. In times when there's a feast, I tend to, you know, have less sleep and stressful projects. And what I've been trying to do is keep track of my sleep and break up my days. And I've been interested in, you know, studies that say that, you know, if you nap, you can actually perform much better and your brain solves uh, complex problems when you are sleeping better than when you're awake and constantly analyzing data. So anyway, I'm using it to track my sleep and make sure that I get eight hours of sleep or more. Uh, so I definitely recommend an up band. Um, I actually unfortunately lost the cap to it, which is annoying. It's kind of cumbersome to keep track of that I don't like. Um, and then I just recently joined a CrossFit gym. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's uh, an interesting uh, workout regimen that you know allows you to use functional movements and, and build strength and speed and agility and all kinds of things like that. So I've just started that. I'm a couple weeks into it. My wife has been doing it for over a year, and she's actually interested in becoming a coach. Um, so anyway, check those two things out for general health and well-being. Nice. Reuven, what are your picks? Okay, so I have three picks for today, all of them sponsored by the letter U. Uh, <laughs> so so the, fir- the, fir- the first pick, uh, I think Eric recommended it to me, uh, I think they might mention it today on the podcast, this uh, wonderful video called F.U. They don't really say F.U., but I think you can fill in the blanks. F.U. Pay Me, 
Um, and it's actually about contracts and what you should not put in contracts. And it's both extremely humorous and extremely interesting. Uh, the second thing I is think, this. I think uh, you just rounded out the show because I think the rest of us have all picked that at one point or another. Oh, <laughs> shows how much I've been paying attention. Eh? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the second thing is uh, software called Undercover, uh, which is basically it's, it's sort of like theft prevention software for your Mac. You install it. And you more or less never see it or think about it, uh, hopefully until or unless your Mac is stolen. And it sends an update um, of where it is to their central server every 30 minutes. And you can remotely control your Mac then so it'll take pictures. And if things are really bad and the pictures aren't enough, you can basically fake a crash of your computer. So basically what happens then is the thief takes it to the local store, at least in theory, and you send a message to the local store saying, hey, this Mac is stolen. It's not really broken. Please contact me so-and-so. So I thought that was very clever. Hopefully I'll never actually have to find out if, it's really, uh, if it really works. And the third thing is a new company called Unlocator. I think they're based in Denmark. And people who are in the U.S. probably don't realize this, but whenever you uh, want to click on a video link... Um, like to Hulu or something like that, very, very often it will not work, and it'll give you this error message saying, sorry, you're outside the United States, and thus we can't show this to you. Uh, and it's bad enough that Hulu and some other places do it, but Netflix and Amazon certainly enforce that. So Unlocator, uh, basically you, give, you assign your DNS servers to their DNS servers, and they then do some magic rewriting of... Hulu and Netflix and Amazon, such that you appear to be pro- you're proxy through, and you appear to be coming from the U.S. Um, and it it makes my internet service a little slower because of the longer resolution with their DNS servers. But it's pretty amazing to finally be able to enjoy Netflix from Israel. So uh, anyone outside the U.S., um, I hardly recommend giving Undercover a try, especially since it's still free until they start up and start charging people. Awesome. Anyway. All right. Well, uh, I've got a couple of picks here. Uh, the first one is Platform University. Um, it's a membership site by Michael Hyatt. He wrote the book Platform. And uh, anyway, he he was a publisher at Thomas Nelson uh, Publishing. And so he, he talks a lot about publishing books, but he also talks about uh, building your platform. So having your home base, which is your website for your uh, consulting company, and then um, your outposts and social media and things like that, and uh, all the strategies that come with that. And uh, he does a monthly Q&A. He does some undercover stuff. He reviews a member's site every month. And there's just a ton of awesome content there. So I'm going to pick that. So, yeah, um, we'll wrap this up. We're going to be doing the book club, Book Yourself Solid with Michael Port next week. So make sure you listen to that and uh, go get that video at goingroguevideo.com. Have a great week.